The question you're asking yourself when we talk about Genesis is, I sure hope James tells us if Adam and Eve had belly buttons. Uh, <laughs> because that will kind of determine the way I think about this. <laughs> We're not going to answer that question, um, but the answer is exactly what you think it is. So uh, you can um, just go with that. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about Genesis. A lot of the times when we have conversations uh, in, in, at the Grove, uh, we encourage you to be a part of like life groups or we actually post some discussion questions uh, online connected to the sermon. If you go to albanygrove.com, uh, there's a PDF there. Uh, we want to encourage conversation. So this isn't like the final say on things. A lot of times we kind of like to say, here's some opinions on this. And you can, all of these are okay. And, and in that way, uh, and this is um, probably going to ruffle some feathers, but Jesus never says you need to believe in a literal six-day young earth creationism. Uh, Jesus never said that. Maybe you believe that, and that's fantastic, but Jesus didn't make that a tenet of salvation. God himself never made that a tenet of salvation. If you believe that, that's fantastic. Other people believe in something called old earth creationism, where uh, they say that the literal day in the six days or seven days of creation may not have been a day, but they may have been like an age, and, and God allows those people to go to heaven too. Uh, and, and other people think there's uh, some kind of a long combination or functionality, and this is most modern biblical scholars believe that it's a functionality that's happening, and, and Genesis 1 doesn't concern itself with some of the things that we concern ourselves with because it's answering different questions. But, and those people get to go to heaven too. So it's kind of a, a strange thing. I was, went to a, a seminary, which is like a master's degree for people who want to be pastors, and, uh, and somebody mentioned something that um, there were baby dinosaurs on the ark. And this is one of the funniest experiences of my whole life. And so uh, they said there were baby dinosaurs on the ark. And when I think something is funny sounding, I laugh and then say, that's funny sounding, right? Which is the wrong thing to do when people are discussing baby dinosaurs on the ark. Uh, I start thinking Jurassic Park. I start thinking, that's this, I know this isn't going to go well. Like the fences are going to fail, you know? And, uh, you know, like I just know it. And I'm going to watch Noah's Ark again because I enjoy those movies, but... Uh, you can just see Noah standing there like that guy holding the velociraptors back and telling him, please don't eat the unicorns. Oh, crap, they ate the unicorns. And uh, that's going to change things. <laughs> but uh, but, but there's, so there's these, uh, anyway, I disagreed with them and, and they said that I don't, if I don't have the right opinion on this, then I don't have the right opinion on Jesus. And that made me giggle more. And uh, those kind of conversations, I, I really, I, I'm not going to, like if you're hoping for some satisfaction to encourage you that your opinion is correct, uh, you won't find those here. Uh, I'll tell you this, your opinion is correct. You are the most right person in the room, all right? The problem is the person sitting behind you completely disagrees and I just told them the same thing. But it, it is, uh, when we're talking about Genesis, I'm not interested in as much as being right uh, as I am interested in understanding what's going on in the story. I think the very beginning of the Bible is a story of God. And it's a story of God and his initiation of uh, what we call creation and, and our experience of the material world and the functional world and things around us and uh, just our experience of having experiences 
I think this is all a story about God, not a story about us. I think this is a story about God, not a story about the things that God made. What's important is God made it, not to me, God made it. Uh, so there is this, uh, uh, what I want to do and what I hope to do over the next couple of months is actually guide us towards a conversation where we understand that God is the hero of Scripture, that Jesus is the hero of Scripture. We're the direct benefit of God being the hero, of Jesus being the hero. But the point of creation is not humanity. And the point of the universe is not you, which is striking to millennials. <laughs> but uh, there is more to what's going on in the world than our lives and your life. Uh, this is something that excites me about things like interstellar space travel and imaginary movies that deal with space-time continuums and those kinds of things because everything is much bigger than we thought and everything is much smaller than we thought at the same time as we're doing nanotechnologies and quantum string physics things. Like we just understand that where we are as humans what we thought was really significant in God's creation is very, very small. And your life is going to be very, very short. And we deal with this tension of that, plus, as we're going to read today, that we are the only thing made in God's image. We're the only thing that bears God's likeness. And so we're easily, and by a long shot, the most significant thing in all creation. Which is amazing because when we see pictures of things that are very big and very far away and we th see theorems of things that are very small and could exist, to think that those, th to me, those things are incredible. And to God, what he looks at, and if we say like the, his prized possession is humanity, to God, all of that is boring because of humanity. So uh, that's kind of where I want to push us over the next couple of months. Today we're going to do Genesis chapter 1, the whole thing. Uh, and we're going to do whole chapters sometimes. We're going to do small verses sometimes. In the beginning of Genesis, if you've ever read or if you started a read through the Bible thing, you might have noticed there's a lot of like just lists of names, right? We're going to skip those. Uh, you can read those on your own. They're very interesting. They're actually theologically very interesting to people like me, but not to most people. Um, but uh, so we're going to talk through all of Genesis 1, but I also want to kind of introduce the book of Genesis today. So, before there was anything, right, if you can imagine that, there was God. And God is eternal. He has no beginning, uh, which is possible because God isn't material. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. If there is material, then there is time, because time is the measurement of material's interaction. Uh, theoretically. <laughs> but... Uh, how did you like that, right? Um, but if God is eternal, and God must be eternal in order to be greater than everything there is or ever will be or ever has been, then God existed beyond what is possible to think of beyond. And God is always more than the, the words and the, that we say or think uh, because of our limited ability to understand and see and, and just comprehend God. And so God existed. And the Bible teaches us that God existed as a trinity, uh, a three-in-one. And the Bible says this is one of the great mysteries. But God, Jesus, and 
or will we, and the Holy Spirit, or what we call like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Uh, it's an understanding of how we uh, can comprehend the Trinity because God exists as three and God exists as one and God is both at the same time. And in this relationship that God had, or, or both had and God was a relationship, God is love. And that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is the perfect and only that has ever been and only that ever will be perfect love that existed. And because they loved each other or themselves, they also glorified each other or glorified themselves, meaning God's reason for existence is self-glorification, which would be super egotistical if God wasn't God. Because egotistical means we think more highly of ourselves than we are, but it's impossible to think more highly of God than he is because he's higher than it's possible to think. Is this getting technical enough for you? But God is in existence in order to, like his purpose, God wakes up in the morning and thinks, what's the best way to glorify myself today? And in that, glorify the Son and glorify the Spirit. The Spirit thinks glorify the Father, but they also all have the same mind at the same time, which is beyond our ability to understand. And in glorifying himself, and in this love relationship, creation happens. Creation, to me, is the natural uh, occurrence that happens from an extreme amount of passion in the Trinity. Anytime, and I can see this in people's lives, anytime there's an extreme amount of passion, things are created. Uh, we see that in marriage. There's an extreme amount of passion. Humans are created. Uh, with people who have musical talent, there's an extreme amount of passion and songs are created. Uh, builders have a passion and they build houses and office towers. And sometimes, sometimes you have a passion just to work to provide for your family and you create things. And, and maybe not like a thing, maybe it's not a widget, but maybe you create an experience or create an environment or maybe you create uh, a sense of peace and calm and organization. Uh, maybe you create new things out of broken things. But all of that relationship that creation is put into, God initiated in order to glorify himself and God creates in the same way that a Passion and love creates. Now, uh, let me uh, ask you this. Just think in your head in case you're wrong, but what color is the sky? Right? Just think that. Not here in Oregon. I mean in general. <laughs> but you know the color of the sky is blue, right? Like you would all say that and you would all agree and be like, yes, that's, that's the main thing we believe. What's funny is it's not. Because uh, if you go there... It's see-through, right? Like it's, we experience it as being blue, but everyone in our culture says the sky is blue, right? And some advanced culture someday will look back on us as complete idiots because they will travel through the sky on a regular basis back and forth to Mars and be like, remember those old-fashioned people who had that internet <laughs> on devices <laughs> instead of implanted in your brain? Um, <laughs> but remember those people and they thought the sky was blue. And if you go back a few generations, they thought, uh, like a couple hundred years, they thought the earth was flat. Uh, they thought that the earth was the center of the universe and everything rotated around the earth. And we look back and we're like, man, those people sure were dumb. 
And someday they're going to look back at us and say, um, well, there are still people. Didn't that rapper say that the earth is flat, right? And discredited rap music altogether. Um, anyways, but I'm lamenting the demise of hip-hop right now in my life. But uh, that's a personal struggle. As, as we, but we look back and we need to look forward that they will see the questions that we're asking as irrelevant and minor and unimportant. When we look at the text of Genesis, we naturally superimpose the questions that we ask in our culture on Genesis when the people who wrote and originally read Genesis would not have asked the questions that we're asking. When we ask questions, we ask questions of science. We, that's how you think. Like we live in, a, in the age of science. And, and so we just naturally have those questions. We live in an age where of, of matter. But the ancient Israelites and the, all people who lived in the ancient Near East asked questions of function. They asked questions of the role of the deity. We have laws of nature. And the ancient Israelites and the people who lived in the ancient Near East didn't have those because they didn't think anything happened apart from the movement of the deity. If we had a rainstorm, then the rain god brought that. We say, oh, there was water that evaporated and it like magically came over here and poured rain on us. And they'd be, they would listen to us and say, so you don't think there was a god involved in that? And we'd say, no, it's science. And they're like, yeah, that's the name we use for the rain god, <laughs> right? Like uh, they would, they saw the earth or experienced the earth in a completely different way than us. And so the deity was always operating and it wasn't a problem to think that way we try to explain away weird occurrences like oh it's a, a once in a million event or a once in a billion event and the ancient near east has a much better ex explanation oh the god decided to do that this time it's the same thing <laughs> just we have convinced ourselves we're smarter than them <laughs> yeah so the ancient israelites uh, it's kind of like this. Uh, the, there's an author who puts it this way. We will, like, uh, maybe in your neighborhood as you, or as you drive home or stuff, there's new houses going up all the time, right? And some people see that and they say they're building a house. And some people see that and they say they're building a home. And it's the same thing, right? One is, though, a house is a material thing, and a home is the function of that material thing. It's the same thing but the experience of it is described very, very differently, and the questions asked of that are very, very different. If you're building a house, you're asking questions of code, you're asking questions of structure and, and feasibility and, and managing weights and loads and those kind of dynamics. If you're asking about a home, then you're asking about the feeling that you get when you walk in and the function of it as you flow from one room to the other. It's the same thing. But your descri description reveals the questions that you're asking about the structure that is created. <clears throat> These other gods, in Yahweh's description, sorry, Yahweh is the Old Testament name for God, in the description of creation, all other gods in the ancient Near East, uh, and there were multiple, design creation and humanity specifically was designed to serve them. And so you had these gods, and you would bring them sacrifices, and if you brought them sufficient sacrifices, your crops would grow. But if your crops didn't grow, then next year you brought them more sacrifices. 
And, and your sacrifice maybe is animals, maybe crops that you give to the priests of that temple and that's where the God lives and stuff like that. In Genesis, what God sets up is not here now you serve me. The story of the scripture is God creating humanity and then serving humanity and it ends up being an ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate act of service through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, providing for us to have relationship with God, providing for us to have secure relationship with God. You never have to wonder if you're offering enough to God. Like that's never a question that should come across a person's mind if they're serving Yahweh God, the God of the Bible. Am I doing enough? If I'm not doing enough, Will God punish me for not doing enough? It's not a way that Genesis or the Bible describes the interaction of God and humans. Am I good enough? Because your goodness and your righteousness, the Bible says your offering to God is like offering dirty rags to God. Here's my gift to you. Because our God, the God of the Bible, is so great that our offerings and our sacrifices seem to mock him even, seem sarcastic in their nature because of how small they are. Whereas other gods would say, yeah, you bring me this because I'm greater than you, but only a little bit greater than you. And by the time of Jesus' life on earth, they would see like the Caesars were God on earth and then they were God in heaven and there was this uh, transference from humanity to divinity that would happen. And you would treat them as gods, but they were very, very close to what a human is. And we would say that God is very, very far from what a human is because we're limited and God is unlimited. When you go into this, and this is the last part of my opener. I haven't even read the scripture yet. When you get into Genesis, and I want to talk, this is really kind of specifically for maybe those who grew up in the church or when you were young you went to church. A lot of people start reading the scripture in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, people sin, right? And we'll get there in a few weeks, um, in a couple of weeks. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, uh, like you saw in the video, uh, they eat an apple from the tree or a fruit from the tree and the serpent lies to them and those kinds of things. A lot of people start there. A, a, a theology that starts there says things like, uh, you're, you're a sinner. And the definition of who you are is that you're a sinner. And that's, and, and it, if we preach that way, I'd have a way bigger pulpit and I would hit it on a regular basis, right? And I would sweat more and, and, uh, and, and I would, the sermon title is like, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Those kinds of thoughts end up with, you need Jesus in order to save you because you're so horrid and God will take pity on you and allow you into heaven. If we start in Genesis 1 and 2, what we'll see, I hope you'll see today, is that we actually have a creation that's made and God says repeatedly it's good. It's actually very good. This is the same God that I just talked about. Your offerings are so small to him that they seem, the Bible describes them as dirty rags. God looks at creation and says that is very good. And that is after God makes humanity. And it doesn't mean that God thought that first man and that first woman were very good. It means that men and women, humanity, is a part of this creation that is very good. And so then we don't see sin as a definition of who we are, but sin is a, a brokenness or an aberration or a problem with the definition of who we are. And so yes, you're a sinner, but you're not supposed to be. 
Because you weren't made that way. If you're a human being, humans weren't made that way in the beginning. And so when we experience salvation and eventually have life with God, eternal life that starts here and, and continues on in heaven, this isn't like a pity thing. It's what I was designed to do. Human beings, like the video just talked about, were designed to live in relationship with God. And sin breaks that relationship with God in Genesis 3. But the story of the Bible is this relentless pursuit of God back to the way that things were originally supposed to be. So when you read at the beginning of the Bible this thing we call the Garden of Eden, and you read uh, when Jesus raises from the dead, they mistake him for a gardener. And then when we see at the end of the story, there's trees and rivers, and heaven seems a lot like Eden. Which is not to say heaven is Eden, but it is to say that there's a way that we're supposed to be. And sin isn't a definition of us, or brokenness isn't a definition of us, but it is an aberration of who we are in God, and it is a, like stealing or robbing us from what God made us to be. And I don't mean that to be like some kind of Oprahism or something like you're worth it or something where you'll feel better about yourself. But the definition of what you are is not your shortcomings. It's not your failures. It's not your brokenness. All of those things are aberrations from who you really are. And who you really are, the Bible teaches us, is only found in God, is only found in Jesus, where his righteousness is imparted to us. And we live in relationship with God because everything is designed to glorify God. And it's difficult to glorify or ascribe worth to someone that your relationship with them is broken. And so you're designed to be in a good and a whole and a perfect relationship with God. That's your actual like design. Like That's why you were made. Humans were made to glorify God in relationship, in love with him. Let me read this. And let me say, uh, this is kind of like a poetry version of the beginning of the Bible. Uh, I don't treat it like a science textbook. I don't, I'm not going to treat it that way at all. I'm not going to treat it. I'm going to treat it more like God is creating a home than God is creating a house. And some of you love to do the whole science thing and, and say like, therefore, it's a literal 24-hour day. And I can poke two holes in that right away. Um, but I find that really fun. And other people find that really personal attackish. And so if you want to believe something that I don't believe about this chapter, have at it. Knock yourself out. Does that make sense? All right. Like, just kill it as far as that. And like, donate to the Creation Museum if you want, you know, or like, take a family trip there in your station wagon. Like, is this, I, I don't care at all, but you're wrong. All right. <clears throat> In verse 3, God says, let there be light, right? And there's no matter that exists yet in order to vibrate when somebody says something. And so you have to right away admit that he can't say that because the existence of words audibly require vibration, right? Like the only reason you hear me is because like this vibrates and then the air vibrates in your ears, right? Like that's the only way that works. So you have to admit right away that God is doing miraculous things that doesn't make any sense and there goes your whole science theory. All right. 
That doesn't even deal with the word separated in verse 2. So, all right. Not that you're wrong, but I have a microphone. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Other Bibles say void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good and then God said let the land produce vegetation seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds and and it was so and the land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds and God saw that it was good and there was evening And there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and the years. And let let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. That's the sun and the moon. And he also made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and, and every living and moving thing with which, 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 which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, like livestock and creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over the earth and over all the creatures creatures that move along the ground and so god may created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them the man and woman 
and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw the, all that he had made. And it was, this time, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In my mind, I like this to be really explosive. Like on day one, God said, let there be light, and it was like, boom, right? I don't know if that's true or not, but it's what I like best. And then God says, let there be a separation between the waters below and the waters above, the, the earth as a planet and the skies, and, and just boom, right? Like it's a much better movie this way. And God says, let there be animals. And all of a sudden, there were all these crazy animals running around earth, just like pop, 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 pop. <laughs> and there were birds, and he just puts them in the sky. And some of them have never flown before, like all of them. And they wonder, what do I do now as they're falling? And somebody starts flapping their wings, and the other birds start flapping their wings. And there's all this bird joy, <laughs> right? <laughs> to me, like... If you treat this like science, it takes all of the fun and all of the joy out of it. If we try to treat this as, this is the way we're going to prove that we're right and you're wrong, then we need to take all of the joy and the excitement out of it. And when I read it, what I see is God having the time of his life. As there was this kind of weird nothingness. And how do you even describe a, with something when there is nothing? The Bible says like the earth was formless and void. They try to describe this thing. And, and he makes all of this. And God interacts with everything. And God does a couple of really important things in that and then kind of gives it to humanity and and sets it up with all this potential. And you see this repetition in what he does where God just says things and things happen. And then God names things. And then God uh, says that's really good. And there's this process that happens as far as there being evening and then morning. And that's how they saw a day. We see a day as morning and then night. But it actually begins with like night and then day and then a little more night. But uh, they saw a day as evening and morning. You know, like, so day starts at night and then goes to the next morning. So we see this process, and this was the creation story for the early Israelites, most likely written by Moses and passed on to the people uh, and said, this is where this all came from. This is how your home came to be. This is how you came to live in this place that is so very good. And by the time the Israelites lived in it, it was broken and there were things. And so we'll get to that in chapter 2 and 3. You'll notice that there's no mention of like Adam and Eve don't eat this one specific tree yet. Uh, but there's, that will come up. Uh, but in this story, we kind of see, and the question that is being answered isn't how was everything made? The question being answered is who is this God that is the hero of this story? 
Because when this was written, Moses grew up like in Egypt, knowing the Egyptian gods, knowing the ancient, the culture of the ancient Near East. And as he would write these things down and write what most people believe Moses wrote most of the first five books of the New Testament, or sorry, Old Testament, when we see this, the question that the people would be asking is, how does Israel's God interact with nature? Because all the other gods do things. Egypt had Ra, the sun god, and, and that was kind of the king of the gods or the most powerful god, and there was this culture had that god, and this culture had that god, of, of whatever things that happened in their culture, they had these gods. And this story is to introduce us not to creation, but to the hero of the story who is God. And so the aggressive nature of this story is that all those other things that you attribute to be gods, our God made those. Like when God makes the sun, and he, like he makes the great light of the day, and he makes the great light of the, of the night, the sun and the moon, it's not just saying, oh, that's cute, and it makes a good children's story. It's saying, that thing that you call a god, our God made that. Like your God he has kind of this wishy-washy beginning story. We know where it came from because our God made your God. When they would see like um, animals and they would worship animals in different ways or when people in the ancient Near East thought about the seas, the seas was like the way we think of traveling to Mars, right? They would think of our submarines as crazy that you would go under the water and because under the water was all sorts of uncontrollable things. Large fish and monsters and sharks and whales that were terrifying. The, the, what, how to understand the way the seas worked was terrifying in, for the ancient Near Eastern people. And to say all of those fish in the sea, our God made those. Like the things that you're scared of that you think are more powerful than you, our God is more powerful than those things. So the story isn't about how do we get the things that we get as much as it's the story of who is the God that we serve? Who is the God who is the hero of all of this? Because God is above, God is very aggressively saying that I am above all other gods. The things that you've made up to worship, what you're worshiping is the handiwork of God. The things that you think are awesome you're just confused about because I make those things on a random day four. Like I was hanging around doing nothing and I thought, let's make everything. And you attribute all this stuff and they do sacrifices and have large temples to all these gods of the sun and the moon and the, the rain and the harvest and the water and the, these fertility gods that they had. And God says, oh, that's all cute. I make that for fun, and then move on. Like, this creation story, we turn into this, like, funny children's thing, and we decorate nurseries with it and stuff like that, then it's actually God dropping this, like, I am the boss here. Like, I am the one who runs things. In the ancient Near East, this is a super aggressive text. We think it's cute. Oh, look at the way there's like a pattern. God said this and let there be night and day. 
the first day. That's a nice poem, God. But if you put this poem to music, it's like um, super aggressive death metal rap. Like, it's not a folk song where God's over there like, give peace a chance. God is saying like, right? Like, you, you can't actually understand it because the music is so aggressive. You just ask your kids to turn it down, right? Like, God creates, so you know, there's this pattern that happens where God creates this functionality of the day and the night, and God creates all of it just with his voice. Like God doesn't, it's interesting because God makes man and woman, we're going to see later, and, and gives them breath, and, but he creates them out of the dust of the earth, so they're made out of the same things that everything is made out of, which is, we would see that as science right away, but the functionality of it is that God is the hero of the story, not the science is the hero of the story. And so when God makes things and he just uses his voice, there's a power to that because God doesn't use anything to make things happen. The most powerful people in our culture just use their voice, right? The most powerful person in your home, if you grew up, you knew when you heard your in my home, when you heard your middle name, it was over, right? Like there was, and there was no action that was going on. It was just a voice that was coming. When the Starship Enterprise wants to go somewhere, Jean-Luc Picard doesn't do anything. He just says, make it so, and things are so. <laughs> That's an imaginary story from television. But when the president wants something to happen, he doesn't go and do the thing. He says, this is the thing that will happen. And then, it happens sometimes. <laughs> that example kind of fell apart with the Republican Congress. But anyways, <laughs> there is this, like, we know the power of voice that comes from a person who has an extreme amount of power in our culture. The boss, or the parent, or the president, or the king, or the queen, or the, the business magnet. When they say things, things happen. When God says things, creation happens. God makes things. He does the thing that we can't do just with his voice. And then God goes through. What I love is God, he says, let there be this expanse, and he called the expanse sky. Do you know why? Because he felt like it. Like there's no reason given. God called that sky because it's the dang sky. And God called that the sun because it is the sun. And there would be this argument that would naturally come because if you were an Egyptian reading this creation story that the Israelites had about their God, they'd be like, well, that's the sun because our ancestors named it the sun. It's like, no, that's the sun because God said so. And then, no, that's the sun because Ra, the sun God, told us it's, this is Ra, right? And that's the, in the Egyptian language, that would be what they would call it. And he would say, no, 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 you don't get to decide what that is because my God made your God and gave your God its name. And when you give something its name, you own that thing. There's a power in giving something else that name. When you name your child, it's because you have the authority to name your child. Nobody else gets to. They don't get to approve or disapprove that. Unless it's something ridiculous, right? The government will stop you from being ridiculous. But if you want to spell your kid's name in a wacky way just to say, 
boom, I've got the power to do that. You get to do that. And you get to make them experience that every day that attendance is called. <laughs> A.A. <A>. Ron. <laughs> but God is expressing his power in all of this. God is expressing that he is the creator. He is the hero. He is the boss. He is the one who gives function to everything that exists. And his love in the Trinity is this expressive, creative, pa passionate force that makes things. And so God creates with his voice and then names things and gives authority over it. Then he passes this authority over to humans. And we'll read in next week and the week after, or it's in two weeks, about the way that God gave authority over the animals to humans. And so naturally humans name all the animals. Adam's job in, in the garden is to name all of the animals. And that's because he gets to have the authority over them. He says what this is called. He says what this is. And so this authority and this um, hero and, and just God is the point of the story. And at the very end of everything, after God has made humanity, and we're going to talk about that uh, in Genesis like 2 and 3, gets into more of just humans. But, uh, so we'll kind of skip over a lot of that today. But at the end of everything, God makes these humans and gives all these humans and, and says, here's how the beasts of the earth and the animals and the livestock will operate together, and here's how you will operate over them, and you will manage this creation. Like humans, you are responsible for this thing. And he says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. And there's seven days of creation, but you'll have to come back next week. Uh, <laughs> But on the end of that sixth day, God looks at everything, and he had finished creating. He doesn't create on day seven. He had finished creating, and God actually says, this thing that I made is very good. And all of it was very good. And according to this story, at this point, God had already made male and female because he made man and woman in his image, or at least the way this story tells it at this point. And so God looks at this thing and says, every bit of this is very good. Like, not just a little, but very good. And we can easily take this story and turn it into like this, well, we bear the image of God, and so, like, God made us awesome. And it becomes very like a self-help book, right? Like, you are a good person. And if I say that 18 times, then I'll, I'll believe it, right? You know? get a sticker and put it as my profile picture and those kinds of things, right? And we have this I am sufficient kind of attitude. What that it does, though, is changes who the hero of the story is from God to us. Like, God made me sufficient. But it doesn't teach that. It actually teaches that God made you very good. And your sufficiency isn't the point of the story. God's power is... God's sufficiency is. And our lack of sufficiency, meaning we have limits to who we are, there's a limit on what you can do, on how fast you can go, on how far you can go before you need sleep. Uh, there's a limit on how long you will live, frankly. But there is no limit on God. And so if we start to think that we are sufficient, then we miss that God is actually the hero of the story. 
See, we bear the image of God. And so human beings are easily the most interesting thing on earth or the most interesting thing that's ever been created. And there are really cool things that have been created at the very edges of the universe that's getting larger and, and accelerating in how fast it's getting, like it's, it's accelerating in its growth. And, and, and there are very, very small things that we understand. And every time we discover something, we have to understand that it's made out of something smaller because it has to be because things are made out of things. But we bear this image. And so in all of creation and in all of history, humans are the interesting thing. And they really are. I know some people really like animals, but it's probably because they have a difficult time understanding humans. That's why they say a dog is a man's best friend. Because the woman you're with is hard to understand. <laughs> and that dog is a lot less smart <laughs> than the woman you're with, right? Like, he'll just do what you say. And if you're with a good woman, she won't just do that. But <laughs> there is, we bear this image, and we seek in that we're designed to glorify God through relationship with Him. We're given authority to speak and name and call things out. And we're given authority over creation and animals. And in the image of God, we rule and we name things and we manage creation uh, benevolently. And because God has this relentless pursuit of goodness and making things good, in the very end of the New Testament, Jesus says, I make all things new. We do the same thing. Like the whole point of your life is this, I think, a relentless pursuit of God and because that glorifies Him and a relentless pursuit of the people and the restoration that God loves. God never sleeps, so He doesn't wake up, but every morning God would, when we wake up, would say, let's relentlessly pursue glorifying me today. And because you bear the image of God, your proper design in life is to do the same thing. And some of us do that thing in a factory. Some of us do that thing in a service job. Some of us do that thing in our home. But every day, no matter what you put your hands to, the thing that you're actually doing is bringing about the restoration of creation to its original intent in a way that glorifies God through a loving relationship with Him. This is why the Bible talks about when someone turns their life over and puts their faith and trust in Jesus that heaven celebrates, that there's this massive noise and party in heaven. They turn the harps to 11. <laughs> there is this, like we see when restoration happens that God is making things very good. Because it isn't a story about God doing something very long ago. It's a story about who God is. And that God is in authority. That God is um, the boss. That God is above all and more powerful than any. And we gain this confidence, not because God made us in his image and so we're good enough and gosh darn it, people like us. We gain this confidence in ourselves because we're, we've been restored. Because the sacrificial work of Jesus has forgiven our sins and through his blood we're participating in the new covenant of the followers of Jesus. And the confidence that I have doesn't come from something that I am. The confidence that I have comes from someone whose image I'm made in. See, the creation story, the very beginning of the Bible, is not about 
helping you figure things out. It's not about making you feel good about yourself. It's about this peace that you can have in this un, uh, like non-understandable way of knowing that God rules. Because your life will experience chaos. You will look at your life some days and say, my life is formless and void and darkness is over the deep. <laughs> and in those times when there's chaos in your life, you know and you have confidence still because you know that God creates, that God is in charge, that God rules and has authority and hasn't given up and is relentless in his pursuit of overwhelming the discord and overwhelming the chaos with order and goodness and creation. When Jesus was on earth, the night before he died, the Bible teaches us that he went to this room upstairs in this house uh, with his disciples. And he actually tells this story when he takes bread and wine and, uh, and he actually breaks the bread and says, this is my body, it's broken for you. He takes something that was made and destroys it. And then he takes this cup and, and he just says, this cup is... Uh, this cup represents like my blood, which is shed for you. It takes his body is going to be broken and dysfunction, and he's going to bleed for their benefit. The story of Jesus on the cross is the story of sin's full realization because creation was made very good. And I think the idea of Jesus, this is my own theology, but I have nobody who's written a book about this that I can cite, but I think Jesus was always going to come to earth because he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of what humanity was pointing to. He was the author and perfecter of our faith. But his death was necessitated by our sin. I think when God made Adam and Eve, he knew Jesus was coming. But when Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus had to die because the eventual necessitation of restoration because God is so passionate and so loving that God will not stop, even at his own son's death, pursuing goodness and pursuing a relationship with you. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took this bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant which is sealed in my blood which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins and for your ability to have a relationship with God. And he says, do this whenever you gather together in remembrance of me. So the people of God, the people who have put their full faith and trust for a couple of thousand years have got together and they've taken a little piece of bread and they've taken some wine and we do grape juice. Um, some people struggle with alcoholism and so we do grape juice so that we can be an inviting church. And we have gluten-free bread so we can be an inviting church. All of it's gluten-free. I'm supposed to remind you of that because Jesus' body was gluten-free. <laughs> it probably was. So. <laughs> but when, when Jesus did this, and we celebrate this, it's not because we are sitting in our sin and sitting alone. It's because we know that this happened on a Friday or on a Thursday night and a Friday morning, and we know that Sunday came, and on that Sunday, Jesus resurrected, and his body was whole, and his body was he, it was actually renewed to the point that people had a hard time recognizing him because even though he had a broken body when he was just a regular human, when he was resurrected, he had this glorified body that he lived in. 
we celebrate communion not because of our sin, but we celebrate communion because of our restored state through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. At the Grove, you don't have to be a member to do communion. Uh, the Bible teaches really specifically, though, if you haven't put your full faith and trust in Jesus, uh, it asks you not to participate, not to be an exclusive thing, but because someday if you do put your full faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible teaches that communion is a means of grace and you'll experience something more than a snack. You'll experience the actual grace of God entering into your life. And so we don't judge or keep track or even look to see who participates in communion or who doesn't. The Bible teaches us specifically that you don't have to be a member of this church you don't have to agree on a certain way that creation happened, but you have to have put your full faith and trust in Jesus. And so if you've done that, in a moment when the band comes out, we'll sing, you'll be invited to come to the table. And there'll be a table at the back in the middle, and there'll be uh, these two tables up here. We also treat it more like um, Thanksgiving in a rambunctious family. So we discourage lines. <laughs> we discourage order. <laughs> Because when you come together around that table, the hope is that you'll look across that table and you'll see other people who are being renewed just as you are being renewed because we play a role in each other's renewal. And you will share that dependence because when you come around the table, it's not just you and God. It's you and God and all the Christians here and all the Christians in the world today who will celebrate communion and all the Christians throughout history who have celebrated communion for a couple of thousand years. And so if you really need to stand in line, you're welcome to do that. <laughs> but there are two sides and four sides to the table, and you can just go around to people and get it. And then you can take uh, the elements, which is a small piece of gluten-free bread and a small cup of grape juice, and return to your seat. We encourage you, if you want to spend time in prayer, to go ahead and do that. If you want to sing, go ahead and do that. And you can eat the bread and drink the cup at your own time. We're going to sing two more songs as we're worshiping, so you don't have to rush to the front either if you want to, but uh, I'll pray for us. The band will come out uh, while I'm praying, and then we'll worship God uh, through communion together. Uh, let's pray. Actually, let's stand while we pray, if that's all right. God, we stand before you, our creator, and we stand before you as the most powerful God. Anything else that we're tempted to worship, you made that thing. And so we pray that that kind of aggressive attitude from you, Lord, would enter into our lives. As we turn to communion today, Lord, we pray that you would uh, free us from our sin, forgive us for our failings, our shortcomings, uh, for our sin, for the ways that we contribute to the chaos and the breakdown of our relationship with you or the relationship that others have with you. Forgive us of that. For some of us, it might be the very first time that we say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need to live with you and for you and put my full faith and trust in you. And so we invite you to move in people's lives in that way. But as we participate in a tradition or a ritual that the church has done for a couple of thousand years, we participate knowing that Jesus himself said, do it this way. Do this. And do this in remembrance of me. And so bring to our mind your death, your sacrifice, your suffering, and then bring to our mind 
your resurrection and you're setting everything to be very good. Give us that grace through this ritual. By your name we pray. Amen.